This is the Commonwealth City Church Podcast. Thanks for listening. Commonwealth is a church in Lexington, Kentucky. For more info, visit our website at commonwealthcitychurch.com and follow us on Instagram at comcitychurch. We hope you enjoy the message. And before I get into, we're going to read some text here in a little bit. I'm going to get to walk through Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. But before we do, I'm going to give you a little preface which comes with an invitation for something we can do kind of practically. Okay, we're going to talk about the very beginning, we're going to be invited into the prayer of Paul. All right, this this prayer that he prays over the church in in Colossae. And uh, as we do, it's really cool to like talk about prayer, but prayer is one of those things that it's like, okay, this works way better when you actually do prayer and just talk instead of just talking about prayer. And I'm going to give you a little preface about the way that Paul prayed and what that teaches us about how to come before him today as a, as a community of believers. And then I'm going to invite us to pray. All right, so the first thing, first thing we're going to get into is Paul talks about these, this Colossian church. There's like a level of love and a depth of affection that he has for these people that he's praying for that like we miss when we just read it especially in little sections the way that we do, which I love. I love going verse by verse through God's word. But do you realize the book of Colossians was not, it wasn't written for us to like pick out nuggets, you know? It was written as a letter to a specific group of people, to this church in Colossae. And like when when Paul's writing, you know, we think about it like, we read this now 2,000 years later, and we see like this amazing, these amazing things. Like we're about to get into chapter, or chapter 1, verse 15 through 23, one of the early hymns of the early church, where they just, I mean, they just celebrate who Jesus is. It's beautiful. But this was written to a living room, basically. Okay, there would have been like a living room full of people. And Paul, when he's writing this letter to be read in the living room, like he even would have known like where people sat. Okay, you, you know what I'm talking about? Like, I remember we played in Commonwealth about three and a half years ago, and I'm not lying, it was probably three weeks in that people already had their assigned seats. You know what I'm talking about? Like, and it was funny because I talked about this at the 9 a.m. service earlier, and then I walked in today, and I, I kind of have, like, my seat, you know, like, my seat, especially, like, right before I'm going to come up on stage to, like, sing or preach or something, I got my seat, and I walk in, and J.R. Miller's in my seat, and I'm sitting there, and I'm like, he's in my seat, and I'm like, dang it, Lord, I just talked about this in the 9 a.m. service, but how dumb it is to have assigned seats, and now I'm sitting here doing it, but, like, this is the way it would have been for the church in Colossae. They knew, like, oh, yeah, he's going to sit over there by, in the corner, and his family's over here. And when Paul's writing to this church, he's not just writing, whoa, here we go, a little boomy. <laughs> when Paul's writing to this church, he's not just writing to, like, this broad citywide full of people. Like, he's thinking about individuals. He's got families in mind. He knows the people this is going to affect. And when he says, I love you guys, and when he says, like, I'm praying for you, and I'm yearning for you, He's not just saying that vaguely. He's saying it for individuals, and he's saying it real specifically, and he means it. As he gets into this prayer, he's going to tell the Colossians even earlier in verses like 3 through 5. He's going to tell them, hey, I want you to know you've already got a reputation. You're a young church, but you've already got a reputation. And here's your reputation. You have faith in Christ. You have a love for the saints. And you have a hope in heaven. You have a hope and a reward that's to come. 
So he tells them about their reputation, tells them how he loves celebrating that about them. And then he begins to pray. And we're going to kind of dive into this prayer in a little bit more detail. But the one thing I want us to know before we begin, before we read the text, is this. All right, he's praying. And everything that he says, everything that he prays over these people, he says, you know, like, I, I pray that, um, that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you can walk worthy of the Lord and be fully pleasing to him. Okay, so check this out. He's saying, I want you to be filled with the knowledge and understanding of the heart of God, but not just because that's good for you, and not just because that'll be really encouraging, and not because that's the best way to live, even though all those things are true. Because he does not want these things as an end for the people of Colossae. He wants them as a means. And the more glorious end to that means is the pleasure of the Father. And before we get into the word today, I'd love for us to pray. But as you pray, I want to give you an invitation. All right, I thought of this earlier. Like, what if, what if just like all of a sudden today, God somehow supernaturally conveyed this piece of information that for the next 10 minutes, anything you pray is going to happen? All right, 10 minutes, anything you pray. What time is it right now? What do we got? 11.39. All right, so from now until 11.49, anything you said, he would do. Now, with the prayers that would immediately pop in your mind and the things that you imagine that you would pray in the next 10 minutes, who would be the beneficiary? Heaven or earth? Jesus or you? All right, that's real simple. I get, for me, that, that helps. It's just really simple accountability. I know the things that immediately pop in my head, you know? I don't know if you're like me, and maybe Lotto. Lotto was one of the first things you thought of, you know? Oh, don't look at me like, you're the pastor, you shouldn't say that. Yeah, all right, I thought of that. Like, oh, he'll say yes to anything? All right, Lord, I'm going to go put a bet down on a game this afternoon. You know, like anything. But my thought is, okay, if I know he's going to say yes to anything, then is my immediate default going to be to pray prayers that would end up for God's good or mine? God's kingdom or my kingdom? God's benefit or my benefit? There's a really healthy accountability in that because the truth is he said something far more insane. He has said that if you abide in him, ask whatever you will and it will be done for you. And so he's promised it won't be 10 minutes. It'll be the rest of your life. If you learn to be a person that prays God-centered rather than man-centered. With that in mind, I want to invite you to pray. And my invitation is pretty simple. I'd like for you to first pray for somebody next to you. All right, this can be as simple as like somebody sitting on your right. And I want you to pray that God will do a supernatural work in them. That his word this morning will take root. That it just won't be like that they hear a sermon or a teaching or even like they have a really cool thought flow through your mind or whatever. But like that they, that the word of God will take root in them and that it will bear fruit in them. And that what happens in their heart today will change the kind of person they are when they leave. Go ahead and pray that over somebody next to you. Ready to go. And Jesus, even as people are praying this over their neighbors, I'm going to pray it right now too. Even um, Father, I'll go ahead and pick the people online. <laughs> Anybody watching on YouTube Sunday morning or later on the week or whenever that is. 
And I just pray, Lord, I can't imagine that's a prayer that you want to say no to, that you will do a work in people listening to the teaching of your word, not because it's like me doing the teaching or something, but like that you will just do a work in them that makes it impossible for them to stay the same. May you do something in them that insists on them looking more like Jesus by the end. Now I want you to go ahead and pray that prayer for yourself. Pray it over yourself. Say, Lord, may your word take root in me today. Lord, I lean in right now to being a man that wants to change. For real. Like I just, Lord, even that was that first thing that, the first thesis of the 95 thesis that Luther nailed to the Wittenberg door, Lord, that the Christian life is meant to be a life of ongoing, nonstop repentance. And so, Lord, I do. I just say yes. I say yes to all the things that you've got for me. To flee the things that aren't just, not just the sin, but like anything, Father, that would keep me from the best that you have in mind. I pray it for all of us. Now, if you would, I really do not, I don't, this is going to sound like a selfish prayer, but I'm, I mean it, God-centered. Would you pray over me? Just that like as I teach, that I will get out of the way and that I will find a way. I mean, it would be awesome if it like, 1210, it was like I just snapped out of it. Suddenly I was like, whoa, what the heck just happened? The Lord just spoke through me, you know? But just ask the Lord to do in me what would be impossible for me to do without him. Lord, I ask you. Lord, I want to know. I, I know... I know that theologically, Lord, I, I do definitely believe absolutely that like this is a room full of people that you are willing and insistent on turning into ministers of the gospel and the kingdom. That like your idea was never for one dude to get up and share what God taught him during the week to a room full of people that would just listen, be encouraged or entertained or something and, and then leave. Lord, I know your, your intention would be that what you do in here would literally change that city out there. I believe that, Lord. I don't think, I can't imagine from what I know about your heart that you have left room for us to leave a gathering like this, walk out into a city like Lexington, and be allowed to have the assumption that this city would be the same by the end of the week. But Lord, I don't, I don't have words or eloquence or any of that stuff. I don't have that in me, but you do. So Holy Spirit, speak a second sermon that is far more profound than the one that people are going to hear out of this mic. And speak to the hearts of people. And say the things that we most need to hear, me included. And may I not be distracted by my own sermon, Lord, if there's some things that I need to hear from your heart. And may we lean into you. And may we say yes to you, the most dangerous and glorious thing that a human could ever say. To say yes to your will. In your name. Amen. Would you guys be willing really quick to stand? We're going to read this passage. I'll let you sit right back down. We'll dive in. Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. 
asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Amen. You guys may be seated. All right, the sermon. We're going to talk about, just calling it like the impossible ask. The impossible ask. And what I mean to say is that I think, um, I think Paul may have prayed a far-fetched prayer. Okay? I don't think that the things he says in here are actually possible. Now, it's quickly getting into the realms of heresy. Let me correct that really quickly. Because what I'm saying is, is Paul is asking God to do a thing in the Colossian people that, he can, that they cannot possibly do. They can't possibly attain. All right, I'm going to read you something. All right, you'll probably know what this is pretty quickly as I read it. I'm not going to read you the whole thing. I'll just give you some of the, the bright spots. This is something that I said um, about four and a half years ago. I said, I, Kurt, choose you, Lauren, to be my wife. I'll do my best to love you the way Jesus loves his bride, the church. I'll encourage you daily. said things like, I'll pray for you. I'll listen to you. I'll respect you as a woman. Near the end of our vows, I said, I will forgive you. I will apologize to you. I'll lead you with humility. I will die to my wants and desires. I will not settle for anything other than God's best for us. That was the wedding vows that I made to my wife on October 1st, 2016. All right, remember the date. Did it, yes. And you know what I did that day? You know what I did? You think I'm going to say something really romantic and spiritual, but I'm not. I just lied in public. That's what I did. I lied in front of God and all those witnesses. Because you know what I've not unconditionally done? I've not done all those things. I haven't kept them all. But I realized and I recognized on that day as I made that declaration to my wife in front of a lot of people that love us and I trust will continue to pray for us recognizing that the Father was watching and listening and hanging on my every word, I made this commitment because what I was saying was not, Lord, I can do this in my own power. I lied in public because, because I recognized that the only shot I had of beginning to be a man who could lean into keeping these kind of promises was if God did a thing in me that I could not do in myself. And as Paul prays for the Colossian people here, he's going to say some crazy things. All right, the first thing, the first thing he says in here, he says, I, I, want you, I want you to live in such a way that you are worthy of the Lord. All right, now, here's the deal. If you go back through biblical history and you take note of all the times that God appears down on earth and that people recognize his presence, there's always one conclusion they come to, and it's declarations of their unworthiness. You know what I'm saying? Like Peter, Peter recognizes who Jesus is. He's like, get away from me. Get away from me. You, I, I can't even be in your presence. Isaiah says the same thing. When he gets to see the presence and the glory of God, he's like, hey, I'm, I'm unclean. I don't deserve this. I can't be around you. I'm unworthy. And then Paul would have the audacity to say, I am praying that you would be worthy of the Lord. Is there a disagreement here? No. We'll talk about why here in a bit. The next thing he says, that they would be fully pleasing, fully pleasing to him. 
The one thing that I'm going to constantly overstate and will never apologize for on this stage is that I feel like the Lord is really kind of, you know, it's not always easy to condense everything about your calling in your life down to like a single phrase. And I don't know if I really have the ability to do that, but if I was forced to, I would probably have to say that my life, that my life is nothing more than leveraging everything I am, my personality, my days, my impulses, every breath that I inhale and exhale for the facial expression of heaven. That's it. Guys, do you, like we can please him. He gives us the ability to please him or to grieve him. Like that's, that's amazing. You have access to, Im, to impact and affect the facial muscles of heaven. That's weird. Like he did that knowing who we'd be. That he leaned into us in that way. Like it's so strange, but it's the most beautiful. It's the most beautiful moment of humility, really for, for our sake and potentially world history. That he would love us that much. So, all that to say, this is an impossible ask. Paul's saying, God, I want you to do some things in them. And every single thing I'm going to ask you to do in them is impossible for them to do without you. So, the obvious conclusion is, everything that we're about to read, everything that we're going to be invited to pray, everything that we're going to learn this morning is really just us learning to say, God, all the things that I want to do in my life, everything I want to accomplish, everything worth accomplishing is impossible without you. And I need you. The only way it is possible to do the impossible is if the Father qualifies the unqualified and makes wretched things righteous. As I know, uh, as I lean into... Even this week, as I was kind of reading through this, and I was like, Lord, this is wild. Like, this is not possible. Like, this is all of these prayers are so big and so glorious and so epic. And I was like, Lord, I, man, I just don't know. Sometimes it just feels like everything he's called us to is just so far out of our league. And I think that's the point, you know, that he wants us to learn to live in perpetual, incessant, and utter need for him. And that's what Colossians 1, 9 through 12 does for us. It gives us an invitation, an invitation to admit that we are people who need him, that we are people that the only shot we've got is if grace compensates for our weaknesses. Now, here's the deal. I know when I say that, like it, there's this tendency in me too to also be like, okay, well, the only chance I've got is if God comes in and does for me what I can't do for myself, and then I lean into grace. But I want to make sure in light of his grace that we don't, skip past the need for it as well. You'll find like the more time, depending on your personality, your church background, all those things, there's going to be a lot of different factors. But everybody kind of has like a leaning. Some people lean more grace-heavy. Some people lean more like law-heavy. And, um, and you'll find like people that are really intellectual might have like a leaning one way. People that are just super soft hard are going to have a leaning another. And you'll find within yourself, even as you read through biblical texts, as you try to understand the beauty of the gospel, there will be these tendencies for you. And I know for me, like I'm a dude who's like, you know, like I'm all heart, all heart, all time. Like that's, that's just who I am. I don't know how that happened. I tell people all the time, I'm like a I'm like six foot nine, 300 pounds, and somehow I ended up like petite on the inside. You know, I'm like this little dude in here, okay? And like, 
And I'm just, I'm all heart and I'm all, I love, I love thinking about the grace. And it is so easy for me to be like, yes, the grace. Yeah, there's sin, but grace, you know? And I've recognized that I'm missing out on the glory of what grace affords me if I don't take the time to pause and to admit that this is impossible because I don't deserve it to be possible. That God doing things in me, making me a man who can be counted as worthy of the Lord. Not worthy of heaven, not worthy of grace, like worthy of the Lord. Worthy, deserving to be a man inhabited by the spirit and presence of God. Worthy to approach the throne of grace with confidence. That only has its full effect when I admit that I am a wretched, wretched man without him. Spurgeon says this. I love this. Charles Spurgeon is an amazing, amazing man like in church history. If you ever want just like to find a really cool quote, you know, I feel like Spurgeon can be frustrating if you're a preacher because I'll try to say something in 40 minutes and then I'll go look up a Spurgeon quote later and he will say in like 25 words what I unsuccessfully attempted to say in 40 minutes, you know, and he's, he's awesome. So here's what he says. Small sins require small saviors. And my commissioning to you is, guys, at all costs, at all costs, you must protect yourself from developing a small view of God and a small view of the gospel at all costs, no matter what it takes. You have to protect yourself from that. And that leads us, leads us into the dichotomy. All right, so some of us are grace-heavy. Some of us are going to be more law-heavy. How do you... Where do, you, where do you fall? How do you kind of maneuver in that if we're going to be people that are trying to pursue the heart of God? It's to always realize that you are worse than you assume, which means that his grace is greater than you're assuming. So never downplay. Never downplay your lack of deserving. But also, please never overlook how beautiful the things that he now declares over you are. And so that invites us to read this backwards, all right? The very last part of this section in verse 12, he says that he, is, you are, he has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints and light. Qualified you to share in the inheritance. I love the word qualified. Uh, when you study like the, the Greek, sometimes I, I'll look up words and they'll have like these really long definitions. Like I'm talking, there'll be like backstories and really cool things about it. And then sometimes you'll find a Greek word that just has like one line, you know? Qualified is one of those. All qualified means when he says you are qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints and light, it means it is Paul saying to the Colossians, it's like he's trying to look them in the eye and just say, you are enough. That's what the Father is saying to them. If you are in Christ, you are enough. Real simple. You're enough. Now, obviously, he means that we are enough because he has made us enough. But the one thing that I want to make sure that, I, um, that we don't miss, all right, we are enough because he has declared us enough. But sometimes, sometimes when I hear that, I, I can also be a kind of a self-deprecating guy, all right? Like, I don't know how you guys are, but, like, I can, like, tear myself down pretty quick um, in my own heart. Like, man, when I'm fighting sin, like, I just beat myself down of, like, man, what, who are you, Kurt? You know, like, I just get really down on myself. And so sometimes, even though I know that the Father has said to me, Kurt, you are enough, what I think is, well, 
he's just being like a good dad who's saying the thing that I'm not yet, hoping that I'll get there. But that wouldn't be fair. And that would actually be disregarding his sovereignty and even his sovereignty over truth. Because truth is not something, God doesn't tell the truth. Truth is whatever God tells. When God has an opinion, truth comes and bows before him and submits to his opinion. Does that make sense? So when God says you are enough, it's not like, oh yeah, I have this opinion about you. No, you become enough in that moment. And the cool thing is, if you never getting around to agreeing with him, that's fine. You're still enough. So we might as well agree with him, you know? But this is not like, I know when, oftentimes I look at myself in light of the gospel and knowing that because of his shed blood, his resurrection from the dead, that I am clean, that I am new, that I am white as snow, that I am redeemed, that I will spend eternity in heaven. And I think to myself in the back of my mind, well, I bet it's kind of like the mom who has an ugly baby. You know what I'm saying? All right. And like everybody knows it. But she doesn't. She does. She thinks it's adorable. And it's like, no, it's an ugly baby. But none of her friends will tell her. You know, maybe you're that friend that will. Kudos to you. I could, I could never do that. I'll just say it behind their back, you know. But <laughs> anyway, but like this is, not, this is not God looking at you and being like, all right, well, I'm, I'm the dad, so I have to say it's cute. No, like you, the moment he says it, you're no longer the ugly baby. All right? You're not them. You're not him. You're not her anymore. Like, you are what he says you are. I remember one of my best buds, a guy named Daniel Moore. He was, like, one of my first friends who had a child. And he had this little girl, and she's super, super sweet. And he thought she was, like, I mean, like, the, like you, if you heard him talk, you'd have been like, dang, that's like an eight-month-old Einstein, you know, because of how intelligent he thought she was. Because she would do, she made a sound. It was the sound, buh. Okay, buh. Everybody say that with me. Say, buh. All right, so... If Daniel heard you say that, he would immediately assume, oh, you know the entirety of the English language. Okay? So like the first time, I remember she saw a bug, and she said, buh. And I said, that makes sense. Bug starts with buh. And then she saw a flower, and she said, buh. And he said, she said, flower. I said, Daniel, there's no buh in flower. I don't know a lot about spelling, but I know there's not a buh in flower. You know, and then, like, finally, after he's like, but she said the Gettysburg Address. She memorized the whole thing. Like, no, bro. No, she didn't. She didn't. But this, that's not the way the Father is with you. All right? That's not the way he is with you. He is not some misinformed, just super excited dad who just sees the best in you despite who you really are. No, no, no. When he says these things about you, he does more than just assume it about you from a distance. He then, by salvation, puts his spirit inside of you. That is not just a presence, and he's not just the power of God. He's also known as the sanctifier. Which means, guys, you are not just saved by grace and grow by works. You're saved by grace. You grow by grace. You finish by grace. And anything else that those three categories do not cover is by grace. It's all him. And it's why Paul can pray impossible prayers because he knows. He knows that when he's praying impossible prayers, he's not just talking to a God who's capable of potentially on occasion in special circumstances doing impossible things. He's talking to a God who unconditionally does immeasurably more than you could dare to ask or think. Unconditionally. Every time. 
And so, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us to be a people that lean into the impossible activity of our Father? He explains a little bit more, and he says to walk worthy of the Lord, and he gives some, some definition of that. He says that you'd be fully pleasing, that his delight is the goal. The delight of the Father is what we're after. That's the goal, the facial expression of heaven. Bearing fruit in every good work. I love in John chapter 15 is what I always think of when I'm thinking of fruit bearing. And John 15 is this, you know, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, um, he it is that, oh, where is it? Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone doesn't abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch that withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Guys, bearing fruit is not about the fruit bearer. It's about the one we're bearing fruit for. Like it's, This is not about the fruit. It's about the vine. It's not about the fruit. Fruit is not an end in and of itself. You being a fruitful laborer in the kingdom of God, you being a person who does the right things and finds a way to, to beat sins that feel like they're besetting and you becoming a better person, that's all fine and that's great and that's good, but those are not ends in and of themselves. They're means to a greater end. And the end is the vine. What does it mean for you to be a person that is more vine-focused than you are fruit-focused? It's all for the Father. All for the Father. Increasing in the knowledge of God. I put in the bottom here up on the screen, it says, to know who he is more than how he is. I remember I was in a theology class a couple of years ago, and uh, we were talking about like some different heresies. And the guy who was teaching was really, really smart. Had his doctorate from like Scotland or something, and he was coming in. There was a small class, like five of us in there. And so it wasn't like you could, if, if the conversation just got like over my head, I couldn't just detach there's only five people, you know. So he's constantly like, Kurt, what do you think? What, you know, everybody in the room, what do you think? And I, look, I'm not, like, I'm, I'm not saying that I'm a dense guy, all right? I'm, I'm not saying I'm some, like, dense big jock. But I'm definitely not an intellectual, all right? I fall somewhere in the spectrum, and I'm guessing that I'm probably closer to dense jock than I am to intellectual. And so when it comes to deep theological debates, I can hang for about 120 seconds. <laughs> Two minutes for those that don't know much about math, all right? Two minutes. And then, peace out. Peace out. Kurt, Kurt is gone. I'm thinking of basketball statistics, you know, at that point. And so that when this happens and I'm forced into a setting where for like an hour I have to sit and talk about it, I'm like, you know, just stressing out, twitching. stuff. So I got my computer out, and everybody's like taking notes. And it looked like I was taking notes, but I was actually just praying. And my prayer, I think the very first line was, Dear Jesus, I hate this. <laughs> and I'm like taking these notes in class, you know, my little prayer. And I'm like, oh, I hate thinking like this because these guys are way smarter than me. And they were saying things that I knew were wrong, but they were saying them in a way that sounded right. And it was frustrating because I couldn't explain that. And so I was just like, ah, Lord, I hate this. And all of a sudden I had this like whisper in my head, like, hey, Kurt, what's theology? And I was like, oh, theology is the study of God, right? I felt like I heard the Lord just whisper to me, no, it's not. It's a study of me. And I was like, no, nah, good one, you know. <laughs> but I realized, while simple and seemingly kind of playful, it's actually one of the most important distinctions I'm ever going to make in my life. 
Guys, you and I are sitting right now. We're sitting in a, in a worship gathering on a state university, one of the largest campuses you know, in, in the Commonwealth of Kentucky. I guess, is UK the largest campus in Kentucky? It's definitely the best, regardless of the size. Let's be honest here. Come on. But uh, we're sitting here in, on a campus at a state university in 2021 with access to information that the world could not have even imagined 20 years ago. So everybody who's been alive in all of human history up to 20 years ago, you're already ahead of. And then we're sitting here in the middle of the United States, in the middle of a university campus. Like if there was ever a crowd that was going to have to guard ourselves from making sure that our relationship with God did not become informational and remains relational, you and I are the target audience. You see that? Like you and I are walking in more danger of drifting into informational relationship with God than probably any other group of human beings that's had to walk this earth that have loved the Lord. And with that in mind, it is really, really important that you and I realize, because guys, theology is the study of God. That's what the word breaks down to mean, theo, God. Ology, study of, it is the study of God. But for me, it is not. It is the study of father. It's the study of friend. Study my groom. Study the one that I'm with every moment of every day. Study the guy that I write songs with. The study of the one that I go to when I'm messing up and the one that I'm going to when I'm succeeding. It's the study of a lot more than just a deity. And I think in that difference lies the difference between heaven and hell. For real. There's a lot of people that are going to study about him. But guys, it's those of us who recognize the impossibility of becoming a people that walk worthy of him that will get to really, really lean into what it means to know him. I want to know about God. I do. But that's a means to the end of knowing who he is, not trying to learn how he is. And I hope that's true of you too. To be strengthened with all power, because this is a borrowed power. The word, the phrase strengthen with all power is really cool because y'all might have known this is like one of the most common Greek words that we, that you use, um, that you've probably heard multiple times. You just hear it a little bit different. It's dunamis. And it's the word that in the 1800s, when, uh, uh, when Dr. Nobel designed and invented dynamite, he found this word. All right. Nobel, which is ironic. The Nobel Peace Prizes. All right. He made a giant fortune in creating explosives. All right, with many factories that blew up and then bequeathed his inheritance to start the Nobel Peace Prize. Kind of hilarious. All right, y'all don't see the fun? I, I thought it was funny. Anyway, all right, so Dr. Nobel, he has this, he designs this dynamite, and he's trying to think, I want to find a way to describe dynamite. There's not a word, you know, explosives was taken. So he was like, what do I call it? I got to come up with a brand name. And so he went to the Greek language, the word that describes the power of God, divine authority. And he said, yeah, I'm going to borrow that, dunamis. Let's call it dynamite. And this phrase here, strengthen with all power, it actually means, this is what the way it would read in Greek, that I want you, that Paul is praying for the Colossian people, and by default now praying for you, I pray that you would be dynamited with dynamite. That's what he says. 
I want you to have a borrowed power of divine magnitude. That when people watch your life, they see you live, they look and they say, I've got no explanation but one. Divinity. No explanation makes sense for that man or that woman's life unless I believe in the realities of a God who interacts with humanity in such a way as to change them from the inside out. All endurance and patience with joy prays for him. We'd be people of unconditional rejoicing. Man, this is so wild that you and I have been freed. When he says unconditional rejoicing, he means it. Like what sets the early church apart is their rejoicing in suffering. You know, they, they rejoiced in suffering and it didn't make any sense to the lost world. And they were like, what is wrong with these people? They rejoice even in their suffering. And now, guys, I realize this has been, this has been a time of tension, of anxiety this past year. You know, the statistics are like through the roof. More anxiety, depression, suicidal thoughts and tendencies than there's ever been. Ever been in this like whole COVID reality that we've been living in. Especially here on this campus. But guys, what sets us apart as believers in Jesus is this. You've not just been freed. All right, you've not, It's not that you've been like freed from having to feel negative emotions. No, those are still going to be there. But what you've been freed from is this. You've been freed from the outside circumstances of your life telling you what your reality is. And you've been freed to live with internal realities defining who you are despite what you feel. Sometimes... Sometimes I heard a, where I was struggling one time with something pretty deep emotionally, and I talked to an older man of God that I love a whole lot. And I was like, man, I'm trying to figure out what to do. And he just said, Kurt, there's nothing the devil hates more than being laughed at. He was saying in the middle of your temptation, sometimes fight it, sometimes flee, but sometimes just turn to him and laugh at him. And be like, man, that's all you've got? All you've got is like, the tension that I get when I watch the news, all you've got is like this pressure externally from my, my 2021 culture. Like that's all you've got because I've got an internal cultural reality that is very, very set apart. It's a divine reality. And you and I have been freed. We've been freed from subjection and slavery to living a life where our external circumstances define how we feel and who we are. And we get to live into the internal reality. Giving thanks. The only logical conclusion after all this is just to, man, it's just to lean in to gratitude. It's to say thank you. And it's funny because I, and I think it's, I think it's all the time, like, I, I get to do, a, I spend a lot of time, like, writing songs. Not like, not like sitting down and writing, just a lot of times in my mind, that's just the, my favorite way to pray. And it's so funny to me because almost any time I'm writing a song to the Lord, I come up against the ceiling where I'm like, Lord, the best I have to offer is like embarrassingly small. It should be offensively small, but for some reason you cherish my failed attempts at telling you how good you are. I want you to know you and I, we're not just like, we've not just been given the opportunity to believe in a God who, who can accomplish the impossible. Uh, you're called to it, equipped for it, and you're enough. Not because like, oh, you're really special. Like, no, that, I mean, that's true too. I've, I've got scripture for that as well. But like, you are enough. You are qualified 
You are called out. You are a set-apart one if you are in Jesus. And now, if you're not, we got something way, way, way better to offer you than like what we're about to give you here at the end of service. Here, just a little bit at the end of our church services, we always take communion. Communion is just like a little juice cup with a cardboard-tasting wafer on top. All right? And we do that to be, re- to be reminded, to remember what he's done. To remember that Jesus, the Son of God, left heaven, came to earth, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life so he could be a spotless lamb and offer adequate sacrifice for your sin and mine, bled on a cross, took a death that you and I should have died, was put into the grave that you and I should have been buried in, and we would have been stuck there forever, and he rose from the dead after three days. And because of that, we've not just been invited to appreciate who he was and what he did historically. We've been invited to learn to live like him. We've been invited into a life of daily impossibility. And so if you're a person who's in here and you don't know Jesus, I don't just want to invite you to like, you know, come to terms with religion. Like, no, there's a friendship for you with a divine reality that is going to shock and amaze you every day of your life. And my invitation to you is to live a life of impossibility. And if you're a believer in Jesus and you're in here and you love the Lord with all your heart, i got a great invitation for you too. Let's Let's leave living more impossible than we've ever lived in our lives. Leonard Ravenhill, my favorite man from church history, my Got a couple questions at the end just to leave you with, but I'll give you this quote. Leonard Ravenhill, he wrote a book called Why Revival Terries that kind of wrecked my, my 20s in a great and glorious way. And in that book, he had this statement. Just talking about the Word of God and what it would mean for somebody to cease to read it just for information and to begin to read it for duplication to begin to really believe that God's promises that he made about us and to us in his word were not far-fetched. And that all these impossible things we've talked about this morning and then some can and will be true in your daily life. And he said this. He said, someday someone is going to believe this whole book is true and leave the rest of us embarrassed. Man, guys, be that person for real. Be that person. Be that man or woman that says, man, I'm, Lord, come on. Do some like holy divine experiment in me. Be that person that leans into his reality, that refuses to settle for anything less than impossible. A couple questions just to give you to take home with you and think and ponder on. What would change? What would have to change if you were going to begin praying more God-centered prayers? and less man-centered prayers, if you were going to begin living more God-centered and less man-centered in your life? What does it mean to live vine-focused rather than fruit-focused? And if small sins require small saviors, what does it mean to have a right view of sin and a right view of grace? Hey, Lord, even as I say that, I do ask you, do this work in me. I don't want to be selfish, Lord. I want it for everybody in here. I want it for... Everybody hearing online, I want it for everybody who's never going to hear this. And I know you're doing the same work by the power of your spirit in them too. But I just, I want this, Lord. I want to, Lord, I want to be like 
almost like sick to my stomach at the thought of settling for anything less than the impossible that you redeemed me for. Not because it's a better way to live and because, oh man, I think it would be really cool and to have awesome testimonies and stories. I'd love that, Lord. But really, for your glory, for your fame, to the exaltation of the name of Jesus. So Lord, do this in us. And ultimately, I love it because what I'm asking you to do is something that I cannot do for myself and something that nobody in this room or at the sound of my voice can do without you doing a work in them. So Father, right now, just as a community, on behalf of a city and on behalf of church and all those things, but more than anything, Lord, on behalf of being servants of your facial expression and lovers of your heart, we ask you, Father, don't let us settle for anything less than impossible. Love you. In your name.